Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. So in this week's episode, we dive deep into Stephen Miller, who is someone you may have never heard of or may have never really thought of. But the thing about Stephen Miller is his beliefs, which are largely rooted in racist and anti-immigrant ideologies, have really facilitated and created a lot of the Trump administration's policies, both domestic and foreign. But what we didn't talk about in this episode is Stephen Miller's background. And as you know, we believe that history is one of those key factors that you need to look at because it informs not only the past, but it teaches us about the future. And Stephen Miller's history is really important because he is descended from immigrants who came to this country that were because they were facing religious persecution in their own European countries. So he is the direct relation of immigrants, much like Donald Trump. But his policies suggest that he has a completely separate identity and narrative that he works with now. Right, because now he's making campaigns and pushing for policies that are anti-immigration. So here is my question, you know, to you, Misasha, or even to you, listener, what do you like more, a liar or a hypocrite? And from the Association for Psychological Science, just a quick explanation about it, because if you may have that same reaction that we did, which was, I'm not sure I like hypocrites very much. Like, that might actually drive me more than someone who blatantly lies. Intuitively, they say, it seems we might dislike hypocrites because their word is inconsistent with their behavior. They lack the self-control to behave according to their own morals or because they deliberately engage in behaviors they know to be morally wrong. These all seem like reasonable reasons why we don't like hypocrites, but there are new findings that suggest it's the misrepresentation of their moral character that really makes us angry about hypocrisy. And in this case, it's not the same as a hypocrite that, you know, is anti-LGBTQ and then turns out to be engaging in such behaviors. I mean, we're talking about your past history, but it's that still same thing of not acknowledging that you would not be where you are today if these policies that you're putting in place were in place then for your ancestors. And so there was a phenomenal article in Politico. We will email this out. If you don't have on our email list, just send us a line at hello at dearwhitewomen.com and we'll send this to you. But since some of you may be more listening types as opposed to reading types based on the fact that you're listening to the podcast, just two quick paragraph takeaways, because it is an article by Stephen Miller's uncle. I don't know his history, but just suffice it to say it goes into the family history. And the key takeaways from this article are twofold. And I'm going to read these paragraphs straight out. One is Stephen Miller's uncle says, Trump wants to make us believe that these desperate migrants are an existential threat to the United States, which is the most powerful nation in world history and a nation made strong by immigrants. And he says, Trump and my nephew both know their immigrant and refugee roots, yet they repeat the insults and false accusations of earlier generations against these refugees to make them seem less than human. Another paragraph, no matter what opinion is held about immigration, any government that specifically enacts law or policy on that basis must be recognized as a threat to all of us. Laws bereft of justice are the gateway to tyranny. Today, others may be the target, but tomorrow, it might just as easily be you or me. 
History will be the judge, but in the meantime, the normalization of these policies is rapidly eroding the collective conscience of America. Immigration reform is a complex issue that will require compassion and wisdom to bring the nation to a just solution. But the politicians who have based their political and professional identity on ethnic demonization and exclusion cannot be trusted to do so. As free Americans... The descendants of immigrants and refugees, we have the obligation to exercise our conscience by voting for candidates who will stand up for our highest national values and not succumb to our lowest fears. So think about that as you listen on to hear about people who are in power in our government right now. You know, I think this is important, and I'd like to open with a question again. So, Sarah, you ready? I'm ready. You're going to just hose me again, aren't you? <laughs> so, okay, do you remember when you were younger and you had that friend, you know, the friend that whenever you mentioned him or her, your mom would get the strange look and be like, uh, pause or, you know, mention that that friend was trouble or was up to no good or was going to get you arrested someday. I mean, I'm just throwing out examples here. <laughs> I didn't get the they're going to get you arrested, but I do remember the first time I got the mom smackdown about friendship choices. So, yeah, that's like... That's a formative part of childhood. I do remember that. Okay, so that existed. So did you ever have that friend now who also hated anyone who wasn't white, who loved Nazis? Mein Kampf? At least to my knowledge. <laughs> yeah, no. no one who would love Nazis or idolized Hitler, anyone like that? No, what was your childhood like? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was about to say, like, if you had that friend, we need to chat like offline because I have so many questions. But no, I didn't have that friend either, just to clarify. But you might guess where this is going, because we know someone who has that friend, and his name is Donald Trump, and his friend's name is Stephen Miller. And not only is he a friend to Donald Trump, but he's also the architect of many of the White House's policies, both domestic and foreign, especially leading up to the 2016 election. So this influence, and they've known each other for a long time, and what we're going to be talking about today happened even before the 2016 election, but you can see the repercussions now. So not only is he a friend, but he's a friend with influence on a national level, clearly enough to affect both the election that happened in 2016 and policy up to date. So we're going to take a look at Stephen Miller in light of all of his emails that came to light recently. But while we're doing that, the bigger point here is that we don't elect just one person into the office of the president. I mean, sure, we vote for one person on the presidential ballot, but we elect a person with their staff and their agendas and their friends and if the president himself or herself is not clear on their own views or heavily relies on friends for advice, it may be not that person's agenda, but the agenda of those friends and those individuals that end up running the country and not the other way around. So I think that's something important that we should keep in mind while we discuss Stephen Miller. Yeah, I had not heard about until this uproar. So, you know, when you talk about it's important to know sort of the whole crew that comes in with the ship, yeah. right? <laughs> I had no idea who Stephen Miller was until all of the controversy around these really heinous emails came up. Yeah, I think and I don't think you're alone because I think Stephen Miller, like other architects of Trump's policy, has largely been behind the scenes. And so that's why he's been able to be so successful. 
So let's talk about him a little. In the run-up to the 2016 election, White House senior policy advisor Stephen Miller promoted white nationalist literature, pushed racist immigration stories, and obsessed over the loss of Confederate symbols after Dylan Roof's murderous rampage in Charleston, according to leaked emails reviewed by Hate Watch. And Hate Watch is a branch of RBFF's the Southern Poverty Law Center, which has made its mission. I'm just watching you laugh. But they are RBFFs. Like, they really are. I hope they think so, too. It'd be nice to hear from them. <laughs> it might be a one-sided BFF relationship. But anyway, they really work on educating individuals and, and cataloging and monitoring hate in our country. So Miller's emails, which he sent to the conservative website Breitbart News, which has been in the media a lot because of its close ties to Trump, and he sent these emails in 2015 and 2016, showcase the extremist anti-immigrant ideology that undergirds the policies he has helped create as an architect of Donald Trump's presidency. These policies include reportedly setting arrest quotas for undocumented immigrants, an executive order effectively banning immigration from five Muslim-majority countries, and a policy of family separation at refugee resettlement facilities that the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General said is causing, quote, intense trauma in children. And I think we've seen examples of all of those. And we've talked about examples of all of those. We've totally talked about them. Yeah. Yeah. So Hate Watch, in doing this, reviewed more than 900 previously private emails Miller sent to Breitbart editors from March 4th, 2015 to June 27th, 2016. So basically the entire lead up to the election itself. So Miller does not. And, you know, if someone looked at the 900 emails that we've sent each other, <laughs> you and me, people would be like, I don't even know how these people get anything done because our topics are all over the place. Imagine we will talk about anything and everything. But Miller doesn't. He has a very narrow focus. More than 80 percent of the emails Hate Watch reviewed relate to or appear on threads relating to the subject of race or immigration. So, and also, and we should note that in prepping for this article, Hate Watch reached out to the White House and to Stephen Miller for comment about these emails and received no response. So basically, this reporting is done from their perspective. So not only is he focused on two very narrow topics, race and immigration, but he comes back to them even when he's discussing things that are he feels related. So, for example, when discussing crime, which he does a lot of times, Miller focuses on offenses committed by non-whites. On immigration, he touches solely on the perspective of severely limiting or ending non-white immigration to the United States. Hate Watch was unable to find any examples of Miller writing sympathetically or even in neutral tones, which is kind of amazing, about any person who is non-white or foreign-born. So he also, and this is probably right back to why we didn't hear about him or why a lot of us didn't hear about him, he gained a reputation for attempting to keep his communication secret. The Washington Post reported in August that Miller, quote, rarely puts anything in writing, issuing email in favor of phone calls. And the Daily Beast noted in July that Miller has recently cut off regular contact with most of his allies outside the Trump administration to limit leaks. So Miller, first of all, would have been an excellent attorney because that is what they need to do, <laughs> like Law 101, don't put it in email. But clearly, generally and generally speaking, there are reasons why you don't put certain things in emails because you don't want people to find out about it. So it's pretty telling to me that this was his policy. Yeah. So like a smart, sneaky kind of person who doesn't really like non-white people. Yes. Great. Right? I know. 
And Miller used his government email address as an aide to then Senator Jeff Sessions and the emails Hate Watch reviewed. And I'd like to go back to a prior comment that I made about Jeff Sessions where I said he only You did. I only like one thing he's done. And this sort of solidified it because Miller was his aide and I have all sorts of feelings about that. Uh, not good. Anyway, so Miller sent the majority of emails Hate Watch examined before he joined Trump's campaign in January 2016. So this email range goes from prior to his joining to sort of six months post joining and while he was still working for Sessions. He also used a personal hotmail address in the emails and did so both before and after he started working for Trump. And so Hate Watch confirmed this, that this hotmail email was actually his because he included this hotmail link in our email in his the emails from his government address when he told everyone that he was beginning a new job as senior policy advisor to presidential candidate Donald Trump and provided his personal email address because obviously that government one wasn't going to be working anymore because he was going to be facilitating Trump's policy. I mean, OK, ostensibly he was working for his campaign. So <clears throat> these got leaked. That's how they came to light, right? Exactly. And Katie McHugh, who was an editor for Breitbart for like about three years from 2014 to 2017, she leaked these emails to Hate Watch in June. So it's taken them a while to review and analyze them because, I mean, there's 900 of them and it's a lot. So she was 23 when she started at Breitbart and she also became active in the anti-immigrant movement, frequently rubbing shoulders with white nationalists. She was fired from Breitbart in 2017 after posting anti-Muslim tweets, but she has since renounced the far right. So basically, she was an insider, also super racist. And I thought Breitbart was super racist. Like, why did they fire her for those tweets? You know, that's a good question, but maybe they were coming under fire for certain things. So that was like she was too racist for them. It's interesting, but regardless, she was fired. She was pissed. And then she leaked these emails because she was worried. Right. So basically, her relationship with Miller starts in 2015 because they were sort of introduced to each other as both being part of the anti-immigrant movement. And so she would sometimes start conversations with him in emails. So asking him about, you know, his opinion on news stories. But sometimes he would email her directly telling her what she should be reporting on or how she should shape Breitbart's coverage about things. And so sometimes, as we've discussed, he would ask to talk to her offline, like he'd want to have phone calls about certain things. But what she has stated to Hate Watch is that what Stephen Miller sent to me in those emails has become policy at the Trump administration. Yikes. Right. Yeah. And Sarah, I think there are so many of these that we can talk about, you know, but it's hard to explain exactly how many ways that Miller's xenophobic, racist nature influenced White House policy without either you wanting to make this whole story stop or retreating into a dark hole of denial. I tried both. Neither worked when you read all these accounts of it. But we're going to pick some key ones and we have we're going to be putting out the links to all of these reports so that if you want to take a deep dive, you know, and really get dark to the content of these emails, you can actually read the text emails. But we're just going to summarize some of the key ones so that you can understand and we can understand how influential his beliefs were in shaping the Trump White House policy, both domestic and foreign. So it's kind of we're going to roll into a speed round of like shitty things that's (laughs) All right, you ready? Great. All right. Boom, I'm ready for the first hit. Okay. 
So temporary protected status or TPS. Miller used an article by a white nationalist that argued that non-whites are systematically displacing and wiping white people off the face of the earth that influenced Trump White House policy that denied temporary refugee status to survivors of Hurricane Dorian, which hit the Bahamas. So Trump's made the statement about the Bahamas on September 9th. And he said, I don't want to allow people that weren't supposed to be in the Bahamas to come into the United States, including some very bad people and some very bad gang members and some very bad drug dealers, which is what he said about, you know, the island of the Bahamas on September 9th. And it's no coincidence that the ethnic makeup of the Bahamas is more than 90 percent black, according to statistics from the CIA. Right. Well, and when you look at some of those statistics, Drug use in the Bahamas is actually less than drug use in the United States. Like the United States is ranked higher for opiate use than the Bahamas. If you look at violent crime for guns per 100 residents, America is ranked number one, 17 times more than the Bahamas. Homicide rates are about the same. Murder rates, America is way higher. Like, What are we talking about when you're talking about how it's so much more dangerous? I mean, I understand there's definitely a travel warning. uh, Americans are being targeted in some areas, that sort of stuff. But when you're looking, when you're talking about like people seeking refuge because their home was destroyed, that's a totally different situation you're talking about here. So might have had something to do more with the color of their skin. That's my guess. Yeah. As opposed to accurate reporting. I think you're not wrong because the administration has also attempted to cut refugee status for residents of other countries, including Honduras and Nepal, notably where the vast majority of citizens are non-white. And that white nationalist article that Miller relied on to sort of push this agenda both Honduras and Nepal were mentioned in the context of temporary protective services and in this story. So, you know, you see one thing, you sort of draw the link. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, I hear that. All right. So then, and talking about the truth getting twisted, I think that's something that is interesting to see. It's so important for us to remember that facts are facts. And, you know, I don't know. People can twist stories. I mean, how many times in grad school or anything like that are you told that you need to come up, use the data to come up with a conclusion, not look at a conclusion and look for data to support that? Yeah. But is there any real news these days, Sarah? It's all fake. Yeah. It's fake news. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's scary. And and it goes back to the conversation you and I had in the lecturing boot camp about where is the line? You know, do you have a line of what is acceptable or not? Is morality a question mark for you? Or were you raised with values that said, be kind to people? You know, where and how far are you willing to push that? So, again, that's an introspective question because we are in an unprecedented time or rather it's been here, but it really resembles some really frightening countries in Europe in World War Two. Yeah. And speaking of foreigners, and we also can thank Stephen Miller for refugee limits. And the White House recently announced the U.S. will only accept 18,000 refugees per year going forward, which is a 50 percent cut over previous years and a distinct change in our immigration policy. It actually changes our status in the world, too, vis-a-vis like refugees and how what level of country are we in terms of opening our doors and our borders to refugees. The White House has also said that it plans to allow state and local governments to block refugee resettlement in their areas. 
And this may be linked to Miller's use of Camp of the Saints, which before writing this, I really had no idea about. But it is a racist French novel and his propagation of the fear that's sort of espoused in this novel to shape the administration's policies about this. So the Southern Poverty Law Center and Hate Watch did this whole sort of breakdown of the Camp of the Saints. So we won't go into it in a lot of detail because it is detailed. But very briefly, the Camp of the Saints is popular among white nationalists and neo-Nazis because of the degree to which it fictionalizes the white genocide or great replacement myth into a violent and sexualized story about refugees. So Miller McHugh, the sort of the whistleblower, you know, the email giver here, and a Breitbart editor, Julia Hahn, discuss it through a number of emails. And then Hahn wrote a Breitbart story about it on September 24th, 2015, headlined Camp of the Saints Seen Mirrored in the Pope's Message. So the article ran 18 days after Miller wrote an email about this. And so notably, Hahn, this editor for Breitbart, is now an aide to Trump as well. So I think it's important to think about that there is a racist book from the 1920s that talks about sort of violence against white people and the ending of the white race. And that novel and the themes espoused in that novel are being used by people in the administration to sort of shape our policies about refugees and how we see non-whites. Yikes. Okay, keep the hits coming. Let's go. I know this is really a feel-good day, you know, in the holiday season. Criminal justice on that feel-good front. So Miller contacted Breitbart about a specific article that he felt was key to criminal justice stats. The article was published on American Renaissance on July 1st, 2015, and called New DOJ Statistics, or Department of Justice, Statistics on Race and Violent Crime. McHugh identified the story as the one flagged by Miller when Hate Watch showed it to her. And this American Renaissance article by white nationalist Jared Taylor celebrates the Department of Justice reporting Hispanics in a separate category on crime statistics rather than lumping them in with whites. Miller also separately wrote articles that appeared on American Renaissance. And you're probably right in assuming that American Renaissance is not exactly a feel good website for everyone. Now, this was interesting because you and I had a conversation about this section ahead of time. And I was like, well, isn't it good to some degree to have information Right. I think that there was an article that I read saying that a survey of state criminal justice data showed that only 40 states reported race in their arrest records, 15 states reported ethnicity. And so while Latinos, right, or Hispanics are just one of the many ethnic groups in the U.S., the population is going to be huge in this century. And so Latinos are the group most affected when states and data collecting is ignoring ethnicity. So why is that necessarily bad was my question. And I thought you had a good point, which, you know, please. Yeah. And I think it's not so much the collection of the data, because I agree, like we have, you know, the census for a variety of reasons, right? But it's the purpose for which the data is being used. And I think that if the purpose is to make sure that we are giving aid in ways that we should be, or if we're cataloging our communities to see the diverse nature of our country and figuring out what programs should be where, that's one thing. But if we're looking at it as a way to scapegoat a group or groups of people based on, you know, the statistics that we're collecting or punish them or penalize them for characteristics out of their control, I think that's when we have a problem in gathering data. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk a lot more about criminal justice. One of the other things just on this, though, when they said Hispanics being separate, 
I had always noticed that on the census data that we've looked at through the course of our podcast, and it was like non-Hispanic whites. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And I, it took me a while to realize, I mean, it is an ethnicity, not a race. Hispanic, it's, you know, of Spanish origin, Spain, and then Latino talks about Latin America. And so you can be Hispanic black. You can be Hispanic and white. So those are really different subcategories that are important to be aware of as well. Yeah. No, I think that's a really important distinction to make and raise. So I'm glad you did. Going right back to our greatest hits of Stephen Miller, Confederate flags and monuments. After the Charleston church shootings, which we discuss in detail on our podcast. So if you want to know more about that and you haven't heard that, go back and listen to that episode. And in response to Dylan Roof's embracing the Confederate flag and Confederacy as part of his ideology, there were certain companies like Amazon who removed Confederate flag merchandise. And there was a more of a focus nationally about, you know, scrutiny of Confederate monuments and whether they should be up or not. And I had no idea that Amazon removed the flags. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. So I haven't even Googled it. I'm like, should we check it out? I don't want my search history to show that I was looking for Confederate flags on Amazon. But I'm pretty sure my search history is totally screwed. Speaking of that. So go for it or I'll do it because probably I'm flagged on, you know, 25 different things by now. But not everyone liked that, including Stephen Miller. And he was key in trying to incite action against Amazon for removing those flags and tried to create his own counter narrative, which is something that we have seen a lot of in recent days. He sought to create this counter narrative to this news and this removal and sort of scrutiny of Confederate merchandise through Breitbart. So he, you know, started emailing McHugh again on in 2015 and highlighted statistics about the deaths of Confederate soldiers, talking about how many Southern men lost their lives. And, you know, Sarah, you and I talked about this also before we recorded. And I think that and, you know, we both thought that the distinction here is that there were lives lost of Americans in the Civil War, and that was tragic. But I think it's important to remember that what the South was fighting for and what those Confederate monuments are sort of memorializing is the institution of slavery and the marginalization of people in our society and them being treated less than human and less than white people, for sure, based on the color of their skin. So I think it's important to separate. Sure, there were a lot of deaths, tragically, of Southern men, but the institution of the Confederacy and slavery was what was at stake there. Exactly. And I think by supporting that or by being sort of shocked and and indignant about the loss of these memorials, you're basically, you have to accept that people who are objecting to the removal of Confederate memorials are probably saying they support white supremacy and that they think slavery was okay, or at the very least that that there is a hierarchy in humanity based on the color of your skin. Right? Because yeah, I think some would argue that there's a slippery slope, you don't want to remove history, that sort of stuff. But there's an argument to be made that you can look at that history in textbooks and in books, you don't need to have visual memorials to that. Because even if you look at the psychology of it, the psychologists have categorized Human attachment to higher order groups, including states and nations, is one of the most significant forces of nature. It's a huge component in human motivation. And so symbols, whether they are memorials, whether they are these new influx of these hand gestures that we're seeing, they're symbols that promote group unity. National symbols are not just like passive fixtures in your environment but they actually have psychological and social effects. And what's crazy 
is that some of these symbols can really promote national identification or promotion of group unity unconsciously. So you see it and you unconsciously have a reaction to those things. So it's very different than reading about the history in a book. Yeah, I agree. And and I think, you know, not that this is the same at all, but in, you know, we talk a lot about Nazis and about Hitler. And there were a lot of Germans who lost their lives in World War II, and they fought they were Nazis. And I think that there would be a very different reaction to memorials of Nazi generals in Germany that but it, you know, than the Confederate monuments that we have here. Or so I, I think that you have to separate the people from the ideology. And the point that you made is really important. But I think the problem here is that that ideology has been embraced by Donald Trump and as propagated by Miller because he's repeatedly played to the views that preserving Confederate monuments, there's something to be said about that. And he's not shy about expressing that. So following the August 2017 Unite the Right rally, for example, when white nationalists and neo-Nazis marched in Charlottesville to protect a statue of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee, who was one of, you know, the leaders of the Confederacy, Trump appeared to defend them, saying there were, quote, very fine people on both sides. I think we remember that quote. A man who marched with white nationalists at Unite the Right murdered anti-racist demonstrator Heather Heyer in a car ramming accident on August 12th. And five days later, Trump tweeted, quote, sad to see the history and culture of our great country being ripped apart with the removal of our beautiful statues and monuments. So I can't think of a better direct link. And, you know, the blurring of the lines between what is policy, what is ideology, and how that's not being separated here. It's so true. And it's interesting because when you said this stuff about Nazi Germany and monuments being held up to some of their officers, I mean, my instant reaction is just like, no, no. But I wonder when you talk to people like Miller, would he be like, well, of course there should be statues in Germany? Or in his mind, is there a separation still of other countries and the horrors that were done there versus what was done in our own country's past because of the color of the skin? Right. Versus their religious beliefs. I don't know. I'm really I wouldn't love to hear what he thinks, but I kind of want to know what, what people think when you're in that mindset. You know, what's the difference between Nazi Germany and cherishing, celebrating whatever people who participated did there versus our history here? Yeah, it's different. And how we've addressed our history is different for sure. But going back to history, you know, Miller also really likes immigration policies that are loved by Hitler. So we are back to the Nazis yet again. Miller refers to President Calvin Coolidge, and we discuss Coolidge, you remember, in that prior podcast episode and his philosophy and how he was a super anti-immigrant. Yeah. Yeah. And in case people don't remember, this was like the jaw-dropping moment where we were like, holy cow, we influenced Hitler. Like Hitler liked the United States policies and said we were the pioneers for what he ultimately implemented in Europe. So, yeah, yikes. I know, right? You never want to be Hitler's hero. But when Coolidge signed the Immigration Act of 1924, that severely limited immigration from certain parts of the world into the United States because he was really against race mixing. And he said there are racial considerations too grave to be brushed aside for any sentimental reasons. And he, you know, proceeded to quote biology suspect, but, 
You know, he also said quality of mind and body suggests that observance of ethnic law is as great a necessity to a nation as immigration law. Right. So mixed race marriages and children should not be born, which would mean you and I would not be here today. Nope. Never be here. Gosh, that changed. Yeah. So as you pointed out, we, you know, that philosophy really inspired Hitler. And he talks about this law in Mein Kampf and suggests that the U.S. was really like at the cutting edge of, you know, anti-race mixing, apparently. And so, you know, he was going to just adopt that one and put that into his whole ideology. And Miller brings up Coolidge several times in his emails and talks about, you know, how basically the anti-immigration stance that we have and how that has been our historical view and how, you know, nothing like the poem, the Emma Lazarus poem about give us your tired, your poor, like that doesn't actually reflect what we truly believe and what we historically believed. So if you want to get into the details of those emails, the Southern Poverty Law Center has them through Hate Watch. But suffice it to say, yep, it's anti-immigration. Yikes. And then there's conspiracy theories about immigration. Yeah, he really he was not okay with just like, you know, being anti-immigration or, you know, holding it up that like we had Coolidge who influenced Hitler. But he really was talking about the legacy, the Hart Seller Act, which is and you talked about it from the perspective that the removal of racial quotas laws harm the country. And that was something that Ted Kennedy had really proposed and fought for. And so Miller, you know, really went to town with McHugh and Breitbart and really pushed her to say that, you know, the elites in this country wanted to keep the country dark about immigration and that we should be focusing, you know, white nationalists typically argue that whites are being replaced in the United States because outside forces seek to do them harm. And he used a lot of terminology about immigration that's familiar to white nationalists because he was talking about the great replacement theory and talking about immigration and the demographic changes brought about by immigration as the, quote, new America. So, you know, he's talking about this repeatedly, not to mention a lot of his homies, his dudes were and are confirmed white supremacists. So, yeah, he was able to spin that conspiracy theory into a number of different articles. It's freaking scary. I mean, I know we're talking so much about stuff that happened in 2015, but it is really important to discuss it now because so many of these examples are from like the policies that are put in place now. Right. And so it's stuff that was in his mind over before even the last election. And they have not only gained traction, but really shaped our national policies on immigration, criminal justice, race. And he's still a senior advisor to the president as of this recording. Mind blown. Yep. So, I mean, I guess that's a question of what kind of America do you stand for? You know, do you believe in this stuff? Do you believe that diversity is good for all of us? Do you believe that immigration and what this country was ostensibly founded on, admittedly not really taking into consideration the hypocrisy of the slavery in that? But, you know, what do you think? Do you think it's okay to have people who have these sorts of views in positions of power and influence that will shape the country? Because, quite frankly, once policies are put in place, it's not a question of flipping the switch and undoing the damage. These things can have repercussions that cannot be reversed or would take an awful lot of time to change. I mean, we're talking dynasty collapse kind of stuff, depending on how far you go. So 
I guess part of what we wanted to talk about here was why it's important. You know, part of what your conversation, me, Sasha, started with this idea that we need to be aware of not just the leader, but their friends, their acquaintances, their policymakers, the people they have around them. And I think it's good to start thinking about that as we look at the pool of candidates coming up for the next election, because no matter how you cut it, the people who are running are running to be leaders of our country. And leadership is a process of influencing other people in a way that enhances their contribution to group goals, right? To make group goals happen. And leadership, basically, I think there's three overall, I mean, there's so many different ways to look at leadership, but the three huge buckets of styles are as follows. There's laissez-faire leadership, there's authoritarian, and there's democratic And I want to just go into that a little bit because I think each of the candidates, you know, on all parties have probably a form of leadership that they would default to. Laissez-faire is a French term. It literally means just let do. So a laissez-faire leader would be someone who kind of takes a hands-off approach, is pretty laid back, and they wouldn't necessarily dominate a group. They would actually do it so that they take, let the group dynamic take more of a position of influence, whether it's because they don't feel like they have the skills to lead the group, or maybe they feel that the group is really skilled and motivated and efficient and doesn't really need that kind of leadership. So that's laissez-faire. Then you have an authoritarian style of leadership. Like these are the two extremes, right? So then the, on the other side of it, authoritarian, and this is Trump. And just to do a quick description of it, they often exercise power arbitrarily without regards to existing bodies of law. And basically, it's a leader who attempts to exert a maximum level of control over a group. They make unilateral decisions. They don't really take into consideration what people underneath them think. And there's good and bad to this. But what can be frightening about it is that it could also be someone who then eventually falls behind on industry standards and will cause an organization or a country to begin suffering. It's like tunnel vision because there's no other people's whose voices are being heard unless they fit the view of this authoritarian leader. And in the middle of it is a democratic style of leadership. It's kind of like decision-making power is shared among group members. It's not just one individual, but that individual person's ideas and vision is taken into account. And so there is a level of leadership in there. So I guess, you know, when you have, and by the way, the authoritarian leader, when I was looking that up, other esteemed leaders include Hitler, Mussolini, that sort of stuff. So, you know, that's just something that's important. Again, associations, who, what kind of style are you being associated with? And It's scary. I mean, I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but like when you're in an authoritarian leadership style, which is what we are in, and you're talking about Stephen Miller being part of a voice within that style, that kind of, quote, expert input is great when you're looking up, you know, getting information and that sort of stuff. But I mean, we've seen it already. Experts get like chewed up and spit back out. It really doesn't lend itself to a group level of influence. And so... It's really, really critical when you have an authoritarian leader to look really, not just at policies you think that look good, but their entire vision for what that leader believes they need to bring to the world. Because you can wind up in situations like this where you can say, well, this and this policy that Trump had is great. I didn't expect that white supremacy would become a thing, but you really have to look at an authoritarian leader like they can go and shape things pretty dramatically. So really, you know, why do leaders lose their way? Because I think the point of what I was just trying to say was 
in any of those styles, you need to be aware of the people around them, or you need to look at that leader's view. So sometimes they're secretive. Misasha, you were saying like Miller was kind of under the radar. How do we even find that information? I'm not really sure. But we've got to start looking a little bit more broadly at beyond just the candidates. And so why do leaders lose their way? Let's just like think about that, because if we're talking about any potential leader who's going to be stepping up in the next election, there is a potential for any of them to fall down because many leaders get to the top by imposing their will on others, even destroying people standing in their way. And then once they're at the top, they can get paranoid that others are trying to knock them off their pedestal and to prove they're not imposters. They'll drive so hard for perfection that they'll be basically unable to look at their failures. And when they see their failures, their own like falling down, they'll convince themselves and other people that these problems are not their fault and not their responsibility. They look for scapegoats or they use their power and charisma and they're forcing people to accept distortions, causing entire organizations to lose touch with reality. And I just want to like kind of do an asterisk here because... PolitiFact, which is an organization out there, they named the many campaign misstatements of Donald Trump as its 2015 lie of the year. And they noted at the time that 76% of Trump's statements rated by the fact-checking website were mostly false, false, or pants on fire. And it was more than any other politician. And so when you have that kind of stuff going on, leaders are really vulnerable to making huge mistakes. You can violate the law put organization or country at risk, and yet their distortions convince them they're doing nothing wrong. And they rationalize that they're just, that these missteps or these deviations are acceptable because they're trying to achieve a greater good, right? Yeah, I think you just described 2019 in a, you know, in a paragraph, which was kind of scary to hear, because I think a lot of that is going on right now. And as we're looking towards 2020 and we're thinking about who we're going to vote for the next four years, it's important really to think about leaders in the not just as a person, an individual, but in the scope of everything. Yeah, you're totally right. And I wish I still had the article up. I would read part of it to you just to share that. But I think what's scary is that, yeah, you see some people saying this isn't right. Like what's happening right now, it can be frightening. Authoritarian government is not really what is the best for our country. But some would argue that once you let an authoritarian leader make a huge tear through a country, once they leave, whether it's soon or in another four year, whatever the time frame is, there is a gaping hole of damage caused to the country and it doesn't often ever fix itself. I mean, it lends itself to then military reign in some other countries. I mean, it can be, it's really, really hard to pick up the pieces and establish rule of law is acceptable because you've gotten so used to that style of disregard for flaw and align. So yeah, I think that's really critical to keep that in mind too. I agree. I think we've seen so many examples of this throughout history and recent history, too, that we know what happens and it's never good. So going back to the title of this episode, which is The Enemy of My Enemy is My Friend, I think it's safe to say here and through our discussion that Miller's enemies are pretty much everyone who isn't white, you know, Christian or Protestant and conservative. So if we're looking at the way that our nation is going, and this appears to encompass one of Miller's big fears, by 2045, our census statistics and the other statistics that we use for measuring our 
country and the nationalities in our country project that the nation will become, quote, minority white by that time, which means that whites will comprise less than 50 percent of the population. It's going to be very close to 50 percent, but it'll be the first time that it'll be of the total U.S. population, not just specific cities or areas. They will be white people will be less than 50 percent of the total population. And that's interesting. Yeah. And that's a trend that we are not reversing, you know, like that is projected because that's what's going to happen. But when you think so, basically, by 2045, Miller and that's just on race will have be sort of against over 50 percent of the population. And that's not even counting religion or political views or anything along those lines. But when you think about now who Miller's friends are and you have to count Donald Trump in there, what does that mean for who he influences and how far and wide his influence has become? Like you were discussing, you know, what happens when a leader loses his way or her way? That's when people like Miller step in. And if we're looking and projecting out past 2020, that stronghold just grows because we can't that has already those views have already shaped policy domestically and internationally. And if we don't reverse that in some way by taking a scrutiny as to who is close, taking more scrutiny as to who is close to Donald Trump or voting for a different candidate in 2020, then that is the course that we are heading on. So as we discussed, we sort of just scratched the surface of the the Stephen Miller emails. If you want more of those, read the text of his emails and the full amazing report that Hate Watch and the SPLC did. We will be providing those links. If you're not on our email list, get on it. You can email us at hello at dearwhitewomen.com or go to our website, dearwhitewomen.com and sign up for the email list because we do send some goodies out there or just ask us for the link. I mean, I'll send it out. It's fine. Yes. And also there is a petition. There's probably more than one to remove Stephen Miller from the White House. So if you heard what we were saying and you read the emails and the text for yourself and you think this is not the the person that you want to have influencing our domestic and foreign policy, then moveon.org has a petition to remove Stephen Miller from his position. By the time of this recording, maybe this will be null and void, but somehow I doubt that. So you can always Google for options on that front if you're looking for something to do and you are outraged or frustrated by what you've heard here. But what is a good takeaway overall for the 2020 election? I think this is what we were trying to craft this episode around, because what you're doing and what we've been talking about is you don't want to look only at the candidates. It's not a siloed thing, but you want to look at their stated positions on key issues, which is some things that will be breaking down for you later. So if you haven't subscribed to our podcast, please be sure to do that now so that you can hear our takes on various issues and all the research that we're doing around those. But if your candidate that you're thinking about does not have a stated position on issues where they waver or they seem influenced by, you know, Others And it's hard to tell, admittedly, right now. But if they tend to go back and forth on certain things, you may want to look at who they're close to, who are their advisors, who are their friends, who have they worked with, because those people may actually be setting the policies that can impact you, your neighbors, your friends, and your enemies, because we are all in this together. Remember? Love it. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. 
And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 